The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele, and today we're going to be joined by Alan Golding. Uh, he is a filmmaker and producer. He co-directed The Unspeakable for the shoots that were filmed in the UK, and we are going to be learning more about him today, so let's go ahead and add him in. Alan, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Thank you very much. So uh, we're trying to address the sound issues this week. I got the microphone first and foremost right in front of me. So you're going to see it out there in uh, Internet TV land. We'll see how this works out for this week. But uh, anyway, part of the mission of this show, as I've stated, is I want to talk about some of the unsung heroes behind the scenes, the people who have done everything that they can to get this message out and learn more about him, about them. And uh, and Alan was a critical part of filming The Unspeakable because a large part of that film took place in the UK covering the inquest uh, that Matt Campbell is pursuing, Matt Campbell and his family, and to Jeff Campbell's death. And uh, we needed to have somebody out there calling the shots and uh, making sure that all that footage comes out really good. And you are a 9-11 truther. You've been uh, for a number of years. Before we get into all that deep stuff, though, tell us more about the work you've done and, and what inspired you to be a filmmaker uh, initially. Um, that's a good question. I don't get asked that question very often. Uh, um, basically, I'm, I'm driven by... Um, a I really sort of dislike injustice is the first thing. Um, I'm driven by a sort of a passion to hear people's, well, stories that where something, there's no, something's not quite, they're not quite told what they believe to be the truth. And that search for that truth is, I don't know, I, I, it's always been hard, I think, but it's probably getting harder now. Um, to try and find what really is the truth. I mean, it's like, um, would I describe myself as a 9-11 truther? Um, yes, I would in a way, but at the same time, I would also say, I don't know what the answers are, um, I, but I'm interested in trying to find out what actually went on, because there's a, enough out there uh, to make me think, this doesn't seem right. You know, So it's those kinds of issues or... Um, where people haven't um, had a, hadn't been able to have a voice, really, um, for a side of the story that may have been lost in the sound bites produced by the media or newspapers or whatever, you know, who, I don't know, seem to have less and less time for in-depth study on anything. You know, they're so interested in going bam, 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 creating what they call an industry noise um, so that people will start arguing with each other on the airwaves or whatever. 
you know, to try and apparently keep people interested. Yeah, well, people so, love a fight. Yeah, I, hope, I hope you get the gist of what I'm saying. No, I, what I'm to be a filmmaker there. Yeah, it, it's hard to just. It's a hard question to uh, to to answer because sometimes Ooh. it's just like I don't know. A key turns into lock, and that's what I want to do. You know, that's what be, that's what I tell people. That's the kind of stuff uh, that I'm drawn to. And, you know, when you're talking about overall just seeking justice for people who don't have a voice, mm. I mean, what other motivation is there than to just state that? Because that's an yeah. important ambition to, to try to I go mean, forward with. As, an, as a good example, I started, I worked in television as well. And I started in television by not having any media background whatsoever. And I came up with an idea. Um, and it basically, it was to do with sports. But it was about international sports coverage really and the in wales where i live uh, we were playing teams like moldova and bulgaria um, and when you watch these teams this is at soccer uh, you you didn't know anything about them you know they, they were like almost like faceless nations so i created a television program which was made into a couple of programs um, that introduced you to the people and culture of that country so that when you play the team, when our team, everybody was watching on television, they at least knew something about the kind of people where, where these footballers had come from. Hmm. It's that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, you, you might learn more about the country as well by, exactly. uh, by doing exactly. that. You know, you just think of them as like a flag on the board during the Olympics events. Yeah, events exactly. Like that. And this, this was a time where, you know, um, when this came out, it must have been 1996 or something like that. Um, all these two things, uh, two programs came out. Um, and it was a time where in Europe, soccer was followed, you know, a lots of fans, not particularly Welsh fans, but the English fans, you know, um, were, you know, being a bit more violent at the time. So it was a way of saying, look, you know, these people are very much like us. You know, here are the similarities. Yes, there are differences, and beautiful they are. But let's see what these people in Moldova are up against. You know, are they struggling? Are they what's, what's their music like? What do they eat? You know, all that kind of stuff. Really. Well, Very you know, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I remember when that's we had the U.S. Dream my... Team. Sorry, I was going to say I remember when we had the U.S. Dream Team. They took all the NBA stars and sent them off to the Olympics, which was a sort of a a change because we had always sent amateurs to the Olympics. It was kind of a rule here. And oh, then they yeah. did that and they were, and they were going up against Angola <clears throat> and they were talking about them practicing, uh, shooting baskets into rings out into an open, um, an open park down there. So obviously it's, you know, you've got this small country, um, probably doesn't have the kind of programs that we do here in the United States yeah. going up against the U S dream team. And I, I, I think they lost, but I mean, it was still very interesting to think about that dynamic and, those guys going up against each other. Um, so this is a common question. I ask everyone, uh, I want to hear your origin story. Where were you on the day of 9-11? How did you hear about what was going on? And then how did you start to question it? So I was, uh, I, I live in the capital city of Wales, Cardiff. Um, and I was in a, a bed sit, I think, at the time, doing my tax return. And I got a phone call from a friend saying, Alan, I think you should switch on the television. And that's how I obviously saw the, event, the events unfold. Um, and then it must have been 20, 
think now, 20, about 2012, 2013, I think it was. Uh, um, I've been involved in sort of being the, uh, the filmmaker for uh, the people affected by the MMR vaccine. Uh, families, families affected by the um, a, a friend of mine who was a, a sort of a writer um, in terms of sort of issue-based things called me up and said, "Oh, you know, go up to London and start interviewing the people outside the General Medical Council, um, where I was meeting all the families who were affected by the MMR, you know, the MMR vaccine at the time, which is." around 2011 I think it was so I'd done I'd been involved in that um, again because I didn't really sort of you know it's not like you know I think oh there's an issue I'm going to go for it kind of thing because it's you know controversial or whatever I was just you know I, I didn't really know much about it well, to be honest I just went up there met the families and was just so struck by their stories and, and the lack of answers that they had, really. And we still, don't, you know, we still don't have any answers, really, in my opinion, um, to that issue. Um, and so, I, so I got involved with that, and then through sort of being involved with that, um, I got contacted. I can't remember how I met him. Um, a real sort of uh, 9/11 truther um, who has looked extensively into everything um, and he uh, pointed me towards Matt Campbell really so this uh, so I met Matt around 2015 um, and when I met him I you know obviously you know I found this guy a fascinating guy I mean the whole family is fascinating um, and I just the more I sort of started looking into things that they were pointing me to, not they weren't trying to um, sort of brainwash me or anything. They were just saying, have a look at that, have a look at that, have a look at that. Um, I started sort of thinking, good grief, this does seem odd. <laughs> you know? um, and, and from then on, you know, I've done a lot of, like, for instance, when I was sort of running into the making of The Unspeakable, I was telling people, you know what I was doing, um, and you, you get things like um, I'd be talking to someone, and this happened time and time again, where the people would accuse the Campbell family one of being conspiracy theorists, um, and then I would say, but you know, the a lot of people are starting to question uh, 9/11 because of what happened to World Trade Center seven, and they go, what's World Trade Center seven? But they'd already deemed myself, really, and the family as conspiracy, conspiracy theories, theorists without any knowledge of World Trade Center 7. You know, and I kind of find that very disappointing, really, because I'm not expecting anyone to be an expert on, you know, I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer. And this is what, one of the reasons why I love architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth is because they have got a body of experts who can help people like me understand what's possibly gone on. Uh, because when I when I look at that building and I've read the NIST report and all that kind of stuff, it still doesn't make sense to me. I mean, there's in the I think NIST didn't have any physical evidence whatsoever to base their report on. Um, and when I look at that building, I just think three buildings collapse like controlled demolition without cold control. Con 
controlled demolition on the same day. I can't be too hit by a plane, one not. That just doesn't, that just, you know, it's really hard for me to believe that's possible. But at the end of the day, um, I'm not saying, you know, I don't know how it happened. <laughs> um, and that's what I want to find out, really. And um, when I met Matt, you know, I just became aware of, because Matt is not uh, the kind of person who is a sensationalist. He's incredibly intelligent. Uh, he's got a good rounded view on things. Um, you know, you can have um, a good conversation with him. You know, that's not sort of, you know, um, sensationalist, I suppose, is the best word, you know, to use or full of sound bites that are trying to provoke you or whatever, you know, and he's not trying to brainwash anyone. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can call him up now anytime and ask him anything kind of thing about anything um, and he's always considered in his responses and I, I just I just start me to believe that somebody like him and the family really um, would pursue this without some you know because I know he's been working with architects and 911 uh, architects and engineers 911 truth um, for you know quite a number of years now um, I met Ted, and I just don't believe these people would do what they're doing if there wasn't some, something missing. Again, in the same way in the UK, I, I don't know, you might be familiar with the Hillsborough tragedy, which is the football stadium tragedy where you know hundreds and hundreds of people were killed. Um, the people, you know, the, the families campaigned to get truth. They had to campaign to get truth for 25 years in the UK. I mean, some of the people who started the campaign were dead by the time that justice was done, should we say, or the, for their day in court. I don't think ever justice would be done, but... Um, and that's the kind of country we live in here. It takes 25 years um, for you to get some kind of closure to the death of your loved ones. You know, I can't be right, can I? 25 years. But it says, when, when this came out, I remember saying to people, look, you know, it's great that that's happened, but it's also an indication of the kind of culture and country we live in, um, that it takes this long to try and get justice. So, yeah. yeah. And so, you it know, reflects when, on us too. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say here in the United States, I mean, what got me about this when I first started waking up, first of all, nobody's doing this because it's fun. I mean, <laughs> nobody, nobody yeah. wants to get involved in a situation <clears throat> like this because they want to be a pariah. They want to be called a conspiracy theorist and uh, have this reflect on their greater life. They do it because it needs to be done because the truth hasn't been told by the officials that cement these things in history and we have to have justice for the people that died. But, you know, what got me was that it wasn't just, you know, dismissing people. It was outright attacking them, ridiculing them, using yeah. the power of the media as a mouthpiece to try to squash any dissent or questions about this issue whatsoever. And, it, I mean, it happens here in the United States. It's also happened in the U.K. from what I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it was the case in Hillborough where a certain newspaper, you know, blamed um, blamed the the fans really for what happened to start with, and that newspaper is no longer bought in Liverpool, uh, who were the people who lost most of their lives, you know. 
Um, but yeah, and then it just feels like people, you know, sort of delaying things, covering each other's backs, you know, to a point where I don't know whether it's lost in the memory then, or or these, you know, people of who could be responsible of lived most of their life or I don't know I don't know it's just it's just 25 years I just think oh my god you know and what an amazing set of people those campaigners were you know oh. uh, share with our audience because I'm not really familiar with that case and there may be people out there who uh who aren't either tell us about the Hillsborough case what the official story was what the, well first what the circumstance yeah, I mean, was what the official story was and what the truth ended up being well, it, basically, it was a football stadium where, you know, I can't remember the number now, but it was quite, quite a considerable number of people. I think it was in the hundreds, maybe a couple hundred, um, were crushed to death uh, in a football stadium. Um, and it was, you know, just an awful, awful thing to see. And, um, and obviously, I can't even contemplate what it was like, you know, um, how were how were they crushed to death? Was it a stampede or was it some kind of yeah? Natural... It was, there was there was there was gates um, that were supposed to sort of flip open. I understand. I think um, onto the pitch, uh, but didn't open because uh, they were all standing at the time. This led uh, to an all all seated stadiums in the UK. That's kind of being reversed now, but um, that was the event that sort of changed. Uh, from standing to seating in stadiums. Um, and yeah, these people basically just got trampled and, and died. Um, but then it was uh, a situation of who is responsible? Who was responsible for this? Um, and from, you know, again, I wasn't, you know, part of the campaign and I followed, you know, to some degree the story. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, <laughs> these people are left. How, how can the fans be responsible, you know, if the gates, the safety gates didn't open or whatever it was? Um, and they, yeah, they they had to then, um, I can't remember who was held responsible at the end, um, unfortunately. Because um, I, I remember just being so delighted about the fact that they got... Um, some kind of justice, you know, but you'd have to ask them really to find out whether, you know, all that, you know, what, what they received was, was worthy of, if you like, what happened, if you know what I mean. Well, whenever um, there's anything that happens, there's always somebody trying to cover their butts in the situation, which, I mean, you can understand yeah. is basic human nature. I mean, in the case of 9-11, it goes beyond that, obviously. It's not just that people screwed up um, and, and allowed it to happen through their errors. It would be that there's an actual cover-up going on because there's more to the story and, and we may not have gotten the actual perpetrators um, that's what the evidence shows. I mean, at least justifies a new investigation into that. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, and there have been uh, certain kinds of structural failures. I watched a small documentary on uh, a collapse of a bridge in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Was that some kind of museum event or something? Um, it came down and uh, on the on the people below. It was a horrifying scene. I got to familiarize myself with it a little bit more. 
but there were investigations. Um, but you know, obviously somebody's going to get in trouble. Somebody's not going to have done their their right job, and someone's always trying to cover it up. And I don't understand why that is not a default understanding of the public of the media when these things happen. Um, they're always <laughs> yeah. trying to cover it for somebody because this is just human nature. People do that. Um, and uh, is you know, it is uh, it really you know, human nature though? I mean, are you saying that all of us? All of us, everybody in a in a position of power, would always try to cover. Well, aren't there people out there brave enough to stand up and say it was me? I, I, you know, know I mean, because basically all these organizations, all these organizations are run by people at the end of the day, and I know, you know, something a tragedy like that is going to have severe, you know, severe penalty, but. Oh, God, I, I hate the thought that, you know, this is human nature to cover each other's backs, you know, when something clearly within your jurisdiction has gone wrong because of your, irresponsible, you, know, you, not, you know, you're making a mistake or something, you know. Um, I know we all make mistakes, but, you know, these people lost, you know, the lives of young kids to, you know, all different age groups, you know. Surely we can't all be, you know, the human nature you just described isn't through all of us. I I really hope not. No, and there's exceptions to every rule. It just seems to be a default. um, What's the word I'm looking for? It seems to be a a thing that happens a lot. It It happens enough that the media and the people investigating should look into it should expect it it's almost like you know not every murder uh, has you know the spouse killing the victim however the cops always look at the spouse first in most cases mm. because statistically and i don't know the numbers off the top of my head um that in many cases that that is what the situation was you know that the there was a, a moment of passion and and the uh, victim was murdered. It's actually, I, I think, and I, you know, I don't have the qualifications to quote police statistics, but I've watched a lot of yeah. true crime shows. <laughs> and, um, and most times with murder victims, it's somebody that the victim knew. The, the case of you know random murders or somebody just breaking into a house and home invading and killing somebody are significantly mm. lower than the cases where you know the, the victim actually knew the person. And a lot of times it, it will be the, the spouse. So they look at him first. You know, and, and again, that's not to say that every case uh, that's the situation, but it's something you look at. And they should look at who's trying to cover their butts uh, and, and yeah, these I agree. situations, too. And um, that's, yeah, and, that does seem to be what's missing in uh, in investigative journalism. All right. Well, I don't think we have real journalism anymore. I think <laughs> it, it exists in certain pockets. You know, I mean, you can find it on the Internet and you find people trying to do the right thing and all mm. you know, all of that. And th- there are certain journalists that will sometimes stick their neck out. I mean, sometimes at the White House press pool, there will be a mainstream journalist that will ask a question, and I'm shocked that it got asked. Uh, yeah. Or on, on MSNBC, there was a, an analyst, I think not too not too long ago, talking about uh, the situation going on with Russia and Ukraine, and they dropped some truths that uh, MSNBC didn't want to hear. I don't think we're going to see that person again on television anymore. Because that's what happens to them. So you get this, I know. you know, the, I know. You, you get this um, <clears throat> low quality 
propaganda is what you get on television now because of this mass peer pressure. But we're fighting that. And you're helping in doing that with the work you do. Let's talk about the unspeakable and uh, what you were involved with there. Um, <clears throat> so, as I said before, you directed shoots that were done in the UK. Um, yeah. But uh, talk about how that worked because it must be difficult to try to coordinate with another director uh, on the film he's already started shooting on. Talk about some of the logistics involved. Um, well, uh, when you when you get involved in something where there's, you know, another, you know, it's Dylan Avery's film, you know, I was just helping to try and obviously do that London-based stuff. Um, you know, you, in the industry, you hear, you hear of, you know, all sorts of difficult stories of people um, being difficult. Um, whereas, you know, I, I, because of the time restrictions and how quickly everything happened, um, I, I just wanted to facilitate everything really at this side and not, and, and just help Dylan sort of get the film that he was directing really. And so, um, I never, I never found anything to be honest, uh, difficult. Uh, working with Dylan or with Ted or Kelly or, you know, Ryan Patrick, the camera guy, who's tremendous. I mean, they're all tremendous. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was a real privilege and honor on so many levels to be part of it. Um, and obviously, the, the biggest part being doing the interviews, really, um, with uh, the Campbell family and um, Ian Henshaw and Henry Young. Uh, Henry Young, I think his name is. Yeah, I'm young. Um, I just know him as Henry. Um, yeah, that that was the most, you know. But again, it it was, I think, because of everything else, feeling very much like a team, you know. Um, it it enabled me to not have to think about, you know, like. Um, Ryan, the cameraman, you know, because obviously he'd filmed so much, he knew exactly what he wanted to get, you know. And so um, that was in some ways great, you know, because of the fact is that um, these were very, very emotional interviews, as you can imagine. And um, there was a lot to consider and think about after them and before, you know, um, because people were obviously highly emotional. And so I felt you know, free to to focus on the you know, the person I was interviewing really. Uh or the people I was interviewing. Um which was the most important thing I think at, at the time because because of the nature of the uh subject matter. So yeah, I, I just found it, you know, they everyone everyone was I, I don't know, it's probably the best production I've ever worked on, I would say. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a really great quality film, and it's it's out there. Uh, I believe I believe on Amazon. Um, I'm not involved with that stuff, so I have to think. But I know I think you could purchase it on YouTube. But it's it's available in many places. Just type in the unspeakable AE 911 mm. Truth, and you will find uh, everywhere that it is yeah. available out there. And you know something that I learned. Well, I didn't know <clears throat> until I was actually in a documentary and, and saw how they were doing it. Was um, you know, when the people sit down. And you watch the film, you get this impression as a viewer that the that the 
person being interviewed is just talking and coming up with all of this brilliant stuff on the spot. But actually, the documentary filmmaker is sitting behind the camera asking specific questions to get these answers. And then you don't hear the filmmaker when they put it all together and edit it. You just hear uh, the the person being interviewed. Um, So did you have to ask those questions? And and what is that like having to ask them? Because I remember when I first started out in 9-11 Truth, you know, I would approach family members and I almost felt like I was being intrusive, uh, asking them to comment on camera about, um, you know, this really horrible thing that happened to them. It's a little bit of a different context for you because they're, they all know what they're there to do, but, uh, it's difficult to do that. Uh, I mean, some people obviously, I mean, I, I, I don't find it difficult to ask questions with people. Uh, but the thing is that I think that is because I'm not, I'm not there to try and catch people out. I'm not there. I, I generally want to hear their stories and, um, and, you know, hear what they've got to say about what they feel and what they think about, you know, whatever I'm interviewing, interviewing, interviewing them about. Um, and so, I don't, I mean, I love talking to people, so, um, you know, and, and, and exploring meaningful things, if you like, rather than sort of chit chat. Um, so I, for me, I, I did it. I mean, obviously, in this circumstance, it was, I've never experienced anything like this, obviously, in terms of um, the emotion, how much I, um, I began to sort of care about everybody you know, which, which went on way beyond the filming. It's not that I don't care about other people. It's just, this was, you know, very unusual, you know, in its intensity and emotion. Um, and you can see that you could feel the, um, I don't know. You could, it, it was, it's difficult to capture it because it's, um, you can feel you can feel their truth if you like in in the room you know um and their and the fact that they were letting everything out was you know amazing uh, it's sort of I say amazing because it's a, it was deeply moving yeah yeah i know that feeling and, and, <laughs> hmm? I was just going to say, I know that feeling because uh, I've been in situations where, like, I've been at a funeral and I had to go up and speak at it, and you can feel everybody's emotion in the whole church, and it's it's almost like it's, like, physical, and it's, like, yeah. it's so heavy that I couldn't even uh, feel like I, like, I didn't know if I could even stand up, and uh, I was kind of worried about that. It would be kind of embarrassing if I couldn't get out of my chair to go up and speak. I managed to do it. Mm. Or when you go to a 9-11 event and you have family members talking about this very deep and personal uh, situation uh, that happened within their their families. And you've got all these people in the room who care very deeply about this topic. You can just almost physically feel it pressing down on you, even just as a member of the audience. So I totally know uh, exactly what you're talking about. And it wasn't just interviews because you actually followed them around in their houses, uh, captured that footage that's in the film. Uh, and how difficult is it to get people to just kind of go about their business uh, while they're being filmed? Because everybody's always self-conscious when there's a camera on them. How do you how do you warm them up to, yeah, I, I mean, to do that? I, 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 
I suppose uh, it's not something I kind of like to think about as a as a device or something. But I suppose people, if people feel like they're in a safe place with trustworthy people um, who genuinely care about their well-being and um, you know, are not are not you know um, just saying things that. Um, you know, saying nice things for the sake of saying nice things. You know what I mean? Are, are, are sort of true people, if you if you know what I mean, or truthful in what they say uh, and how they say it. I'd imagine um, that you know people. You know, it's a, it's a bit more once you've spent a little bit of time then and um, got to know someone and, and they've asked you the questions they want to ask. This is off camera now. Um, and they can see that you're gen you're genuine in what you are trying to do and who you are, um, then it, it becomes it becomes sort of natural, really, you know, for for people to sort of feel comfortable about doing whatever they're doing, you know. But because um, I think you know most people will see when someone's um, laying on the the flowery language we say or um, being disingenuous or, you know, just trying to, false, being false. I think, you know, the public or, you know, people in general, they are smart enough to know that, you know, I believe in the majority of cases. <laughs> um, um, I hope in all cases. Um, but, you know, from someone who I, I don't get involved in things I don't believe in. So, um, you know, I've never been in something that I've tried to set someone up or, um, you know, who would want to do that is my question. <laughs> you know, what kind of people want to set people up and, you know, make them look foolish or whatever, you know. Um, on the other hand, I, I, you know, I'm not interested in sort of just, you know, if there's a difficult question to be asked, I'm all up for that, you know, but you know, the timing of that question and how that question is phrased, etc., cetera, um, is, is important, I think, in terms of, you know, um, allowing someone to truly express what they think about. It may be a difficult, uh, difficult issue. Because, you know, yeah. if, someone's, if, someone's, if someone's responsible for something really bad, I'm not going to let them off, the, you know, I don't want to let them off the hook, but at the same time, I don't want to, you know, um, I, I want them to decide whether to, to talk or not themselves. I don't want to try and trick them into it or anything like that, you know. I just want them to say, you know, this is your chance to get this off your chest, you know. Um, yeah, and if, if you can get somebody talking, too, because I've, I've learned this doing the show. I, I think I'm the, probably one of the least intrusive uh, podcast hosts I don't know if that's even the right word, but uh, because I want to hear it from the guest, you know, there's people that uh, will jump in and, and, you know, interrupt them in some cases, but I think it's best if you can get somebody going and see where that stream of consciousness leads them on a particular topic. That's when you get the best stuff. I mean, yeah, it can do, you know, sometimes a question, you know, can start off with the, as you say, with the, with a certain answer and they can go somewhere else much more magical if you like, you know, or, much more moving or um, poignant, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully, uh, you know, um, you know, because I've seen your uh, shows before, you know, I I feel comfortable in your presence, as it were. 
it. So um, I'm, I feel free to talk. Well, I hope everyone feels comfortable coming on here. <laughs> I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable unless they were from Nest, and then it might be a slightly different show. But the invitation is open if, uh, if anyone yeah. wants to uh, come under the lights here. Yeah. I think the whole posture would be different. It'd be better with a microphone <laughs> like this. Yeah. But, um, but no, we yeah. want people to be comfortable here. So you were there when they submitted uh, the inquest and, and got that footage. What was that like? Because this has been a tremendous effort that has been underway, and it's still going to go on for a little while. Nothing happens in a night here uh, with with this issue, as this movement is well aware after 20 years. Um, but, uh, but it was a very powerful part of that film. What was that like for you being there and witnessing what could end up being a part of history? Yeah. I mean, because when I, when I saw, when I first met Matt, uh, about seven, seven or eight years previous, um, I, I talked to him about, you know, he, he mentioned the, this concept of trying to get, uh, the inquest reopened, I think it was, um, um, Oh, definitely. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And so um, and I was really fascinated by that, you know, as a, as a concept, because I, mean, I didn't really know much about inquests. Um, and so, I, you know, I knew that he was talking about it. And then at one point I got an email from him saying that, you know, he just couldn't uh, at that time, he just couldn't face. Um, I think he's had a few setbacks in trying to achieve, um, you know, trying to get the the ball rolling on that. Um, I think he just needed some time off. And then, um, obviously, yeah, he, he came back into the picture, I think through a conversation with Ted, when they realized that they, they, you know, like Matt was trying to achieve something, but and, and what Ted was trying to achieve actually married perfectly, really. Um, and so I knew there'd been a lot of, you know, it was, I was seeing Ted uh, during the course of the making the film, and you could see the hours he was putting into uh, trying to both of them, you know, um, to firm up all the evidence to be submitted. You know, you know, I could see over the time period that Ted was started clean shaven every every time I saw him, and then he become more and more bearded. <laughs> 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 Um, and you, you could just see that, you know, it was, and so when we were there, when all the documents were, you know, um, in the box, ready to go, you know, it kind of, you know, it was a big, you know, it was a big moment. It's a funny thing to see, really, in the sense of, like, all these documents in the box is a big moment, you know, but it did feel like one, you know, um, and so much, so many hours, so much effort, and so many years of effort uh, were in these boxes, you know. Um, so I felt like a, a, I could see it was a big relief to Matt, you know, um, to finally get it in because he knows deep down that there's something, something not right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think he's right. I do. I think he's, he's definitely on the, you know, a Ted, you know, and there's something not quite right about the whole thing. And it was, it was, it was a good moment, you know. Be. I say that's why for me it's an honor and privilege to 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 be there really and to, to take part in it all. You know? Yeah, you know it's so weird too to think about like history. Now you know we'll, we'll see what happens with the inquest. We're very hopeful about it. <clears throat> but, well, for some of the for some 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 of the signs uh, that we've seen, 
but like in history, you think about these monumental events and you expect there to be mood music and, you know, this very cinematic uh, appearance to it. But in real life is real life. And yeah. talk about the boxes full of all of this work. And then you just kind of hand it off. And I remember that we had a, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, we did a project that we worked on for a long time. We were sending a fax out to police stations. And I remember all of the debating and everything that went on with this project. And then finally we just hit the send button and it went out. <clears throat> we checked yeah. it we went through and it was like, Oh, okay. That's over. You know, you expect there to be some kind of, uh, I don't know, an explosion or you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of yeah. orchestra noise. And um, no, you just hit the button and it's over. You know, this felt the same way with the, the book. I just did too. Like we sent the final mm. copy off and it's like, oh, I guess that's done. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but but I know it, it is weird. I mean, I know a lot of people in television spend a lot of time trying to, uh, you know, capture big moments um, that are basically sent on an email um, in a different way, you know, to make them into something visual, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But this this was this was yeah, it was good. I think you know, I, I think it was good for the family as well to see that evidence and feel it, you know, to feel it physically, you know, that you know, in terms of those boxes and see the, all the, you know, you can, you can, you know that there's, you can, it's like a physical expression of hard work over years and years and years, you know, because um, that evidence, you know, it can't have a weak link, you know, because if it does, then someone's going to you know, make that weak link big, I think. Yeah. So no. hopefully, I, I believe they have been as thorough as is humanly possible, you know. Yeah, we, we're very it's, careful here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, and, um, and... Sorry, they, they, yeah, it just seems like, you know, from the conversations I've had, um, obviously, uh, you know, there's no... I'd say there's no sensationalism for the, the sake of it, you know what I mean? You know, and exactly. I think it's important, important for that not to be ever the case, really. Um, yeah, and I, I, I really hope that... Um, they do get, you know, the result they're looking for, you know. Or the now, result they deserve, really, because, you know, what, I think Jeff got something like two minutes in terms of the original inquest, took two minutes or something on, on him, you know. Like, it's, it's just incredible, isn't it, you know. Um, two or three minutes, I think it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Such an important event and really needed a lot more scrutiny than it got. Um, not just in the UK, yes. but over here in the United yeah. States. I mean, it was, they pretty much, it was a rubber stamp what they came up with. The 9-11 Commission first, and then the NIST reports later. Big rubber stamps, big uh, big shows, basically, to, for something that for politicians to point to and say, oh, they covered it, we don't have to know anything about this. Mm. Um, and they don't, most of them. But that doesn't stop from dismissing it. What kind of impact do you think it'll have <clears throat> if this... Uh, if this goes the way that we think it should, what kind of impact do you think it'll have on the issue in the UK? Uh, just everything overall. Uh, the thing is that, again, I, I'm not, you know, from what I've been told by other people who, um, like the guy who introduced me to Matt, who's become a friend of mine now, Richard, in, in Swansea, which is about 50 miles west of Cardiff. Um, he, you know, he, he would tell me about journalists that would attempt to sort of ask questions about 
you know, the things that didn't seem quite right, you know, who were losing their jobs and not being, you know, being removed from the newspapers and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, subsequent reports that have come out, like the Toronto report or the Alaskan one that never gets any coverage anywhere in the mainstream or on radio, you know, um, on any of the traditional channels, should we say. Um, so that worries me a, big, <laughs> a lot in terms of, um, you know, uh, whether it's going to be ignored. Um, the, to be fair, though, the, the newspapers did cover Matt's, you know, the, the resubmission, the submission of the evidence for the to open the, re, uh, the inquest again. There was lots of coverage for that. So, um, so there's hope there um, that at least they, the people will cover, um, you know, the, the inquest when it's reopened. Um, so, my, you know, I obviously it'd be great if if journalism went back to sort of trying to report the facts, if you like, rather than peering to support certain facts. You know what I mean? <laughs> Both sides, rather than just one side, which is what it seems to me is going on. Um, and so I'm hoping, you know, but that seems like a, a big hope. Yeah, well, you know, last week we had um, Mick Harrison and Ted Walter on to talk about our lawsuit against NIST. And one of the things that NIST had said in their motion to dismiss was that, oh, if if it turns out uh, that we had to change, and I'm paraphrasing, they didn't write it this way, yeah. of course, but, yeah, yeah. but basically, um, if, you know, if, if it's revealed that explosives brought down Building 7, that doesn't guarantee it'll have any impact on... Uh, you know, the, uh, on Congress to do anything about the Twin Towers or, the, you know, to look into the Twin Towers again. Now, that seems very shady, that uh, that argument there, because, I mean, it absolutely would have an impact. But if they were right, what would that say about our system of justice here in the United States? Oh, yeah, okay, Building 7 was brought down in a controlled demolition, but we're not going to look into anything else. We're just going to report it on the back page of some obscure newspaper and move on. So mm. I hope they're not right in that case because that is a condemnation of our government here in the United States. Um, <clears throat> what do you think? I mean, again, we're just a, a couple of guys here. We're not experts on government, but the government yeah. in the UK should be expected to respond if this inquest goes our way. It's not something you can just simply ignore um, and, and just move on and say, well, it's one of those mysteries of history. And I guess, uh, We'll never know. I mean, that should prompt a major response from the UK government in some form. I but what do you think? You live there. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're kind of asking me about my faith in our government, aren't you? <laughs> um, I, I previously attempted to run, run in as a you know as a local councillor and I've been involved in sort of local politics for a while you know for quite a few years you know um, but I kind of stay away from it now because I I just think the whole system you know I don't think the whole system, I don't think the system's a democracy to begin with um, you know there's I, I can't remember there was a government administrator I think who I think it was. Oh, I better not say that because uh, it was the it was the quote um, you know when nine eleven happened it was a good day to bury bad news which um, was a I think I think came out of a government press office 
you know, which says so much, you know. Um, so there's, we've had the expenses scandals, you know, we've got, you know, the current thing with, um, you know, breaking COVID rules and all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's just loads and loads. And it seems never ending. Uh, and again, it comes down to, in some ways to what I was saying earlier about why can't people get into these offices, you know, into office and be honest? Why? Yeah. You know, it does make you say, you know, that actually it's human nature to, it's human nature to be corrupted, you know. But surely that's not always the case. But, it's, but it seems as soon as you get up into those things, then I'm sure there must be some honest politicians in our government. Um, but maybe they get sidelined or something. I don't know. I don't know. I just, uh, in some ways, people have said to me, look, you know, they've been successful by putting you off politics because it's, you know, it's people like you, they don't want in the system. You know, that's a point, isn't it? You know, it's a good yeah. point. Well, I, my, my theory is that when you have power, whenever you have anything, you have to look at what it's going to attract. So if you, uh, I don't know, just a very simple terms, if you have a candy store, you're going to probably attract people to uh, who, who like candy, right? That's very mm. simplistic. So when you have power, um, you're going to attract people that want power just by whatever hole in their soul they're trying to fill. They need that. They need to feel like they're above other people given orders. They, they love that. Yeah. They love the idea of that, of that being them. So, <clears throat> so now you've got a big race to go get whatever seat, you know, seat in the parliament, seat in the Congress, city council or prime minister or president, whatever, big race to get that uh, big pool of people that want to get it. But some people have limits. Some people have limits as to what they're willing to do. You know, some people yeah. don't have limits. Some people are downright psychopaths and um, right. step on their own mother to get there. So now, <laughs> you know, in this race, these walls come up for certain for the good people say, well, look, I'm not willing to do that particular thing to get it. I don't want it that bad. But the other people, you know, they're going to they're going to proceed forward. Now you've got this races among very bad people. And uh, it's whatever, whichever one is most cutthroat and uh, do, willing to do what it takes to, to get there. And that's what you mm. end up with. So that's my, my sociological theory. I'm sure somebody could yeah. take that up better and I mean, put it in a paper. But that's what I think is going on. I mean, the sad cases. thing is that, you know, these people who are like that and who potentially get to the top, you know, are supported by other people in order to be able to get there. And, mm-hmm. um, that's got to stop, isn't it? Some at some point. I mean, it's, it's, is it realistic to even think these thoughts that honest people could honest, you know, people who won't be corrupted could get to the the highest levels of our politics? You know, um, I've got to believe. I've got to believe there are people out there who are like that because you know I refuse to get down about it. <laughs> I believe that too. And I'm going to tell you something. Um, no, I, I think that like the less ambitious you are, the more powerful you are. Now, when I say ambitious, I mean, you know, you got to get out of bed in the morning. You got to do work, the work and all that. So, you know, I'm not saying that like the, the sloths of our society are going to save the world or anything, but like somebody who's willing to do all the work and come out the other end, not winning is actually more powerful. So I say this to the audience out there. If you are inclined or have had in your head, hey, I should run for Congress, you know, congressional races are coming up, go out and do it, you know, go out and do it, do the work with the goal of spreading 
the 9-11 evidence, the World Trade Center evidence, getting it into debates if you can, uh, you know, and, you know, working with little funds. Maybe you can use a Google Plus page. I knew somebody that uh, that ran a campaign like that. Um, and, uh, and just expect that at the end, you're probably not going to win, but that's okay because you stuck to your principles and you got the information out there. And then if you do win great guns, we'll be giving you a call. But, um, but basically, yeah, just, you know, don't be as ambitious because the more ambitious you are, the easier you are to control and manipulate because they know exactly what your prize is, what your key is heard that in a movie recently you know what what's somebody's key figure out what it is is it money is it uh, power what is it this was a from a manipulator in the, in the film and they know what your key is and if they know that's what your key is then they'll you'll they know you'll say whatever uh they want you to say so yeah uh, you know just uh stick to your own principles and stay true to yourself now it's 20 years later i ask this a lot uh, I know why I continue to do this work and why it's still important. Why do you continue to be into this issue? Why is this issue still important even 20 years after the event took place? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the fact that um, I'm, I, I personally, I mean, it's all about my personal interest. I need to see justice done, you know? Um, and you know, for instance, in a situation, in a fictional situation, if I felt um, that justice justice needed to be done, um, and then I was exposed to evidence that clearly showed that uh, the pre-held view was was the correct one, then I would say, okay, fine. Um, I don't think that's been the case in this, you know. Um, I don't think you know the people have been told the truth on it, um, the, <laughs> the real truth. Um, and so, you know, obviously going through something like the unspeakable and being connected to the Campbell family, um, you know, and having you know met all the family and spoke to them obviously deeply, um, that also really sort of you know I got a I don't know when when you when you sort of do the kind of interviews that I did those in, in, in making the film, it makes you feel connected to the, the family members in a way that they almost feel like your own family members because they've kind of, you know, told, you know, revealed everything about, you know, what it's meant to them to have gone through that and bear their soul and, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. I have a, a connection, you know, to, I, I really deeply care about these people and uh, I care about anyone who hasn't got those answers, you know. Um, and again, in going back to my involvement with um, the people who were involved in the MMR thing, the family members still to this day haven't been told what happened to their children, you know. And so, the, the parents blame themselves, you know, for going in there and having this jab. And, and again, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Um, you know, so it's, it's you know, that is, it, I, I think the word's closure, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, but a closure that's actually meaningful, you know, uh, not being fobbed off, you know, with some kind of, 
vague response, you know, uh, which I believe is what happened to a lot of families there, because yeah? no one's ever been really able to say what's happened to those back there. Um, yeah, so that's why I'm, uh, that's why I continue to speak to Matt about, you know, um, you know what? What if 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 and when the inquest happens? What we can do in order to help um, the media take it? You know, get try and get attention to what's happening. You know, um, but at the same time, you know, even if we weren't talking about those things, I'd still talk to him in the same way anyway because I I'm just passionate about you know I just so much want them to get their day in the inquest, as it were. What day in the current is called. That's right. And, uh, you know, here's the deal. I think we are going to win in the end. I really do. Even if it takes time, we're going to win in the end. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, I, like, I like that. I like the fact that you say that. But even in the meantime, I mean, what we're doing, first of all, it's liberating. It's horrifying at first, but it's also liberating to find out the truth about what really happened and then watch all of these faces on TV try to cover it up because it's almost like, you know, it's like being attracted to a, 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 a person and then you find out that they've got like a tail or something, you know, like you find out basically that that all of the stuff that they, that they put in front of you to um, try to bedazzle you and tell you that you, you know, need to be a part of in order to be something in the society is really just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. All you got to do is be a good person and do your best. And it's just such a liberating uh, message there. But also, too, I've, you know, I've mm. been overseas. I've seen what happens when the people give up on the concept of accountability from their government. It's not, you know, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. You know, you have uh, yeah. manhole covers in the street that are never replaced. Um, and it becomes a big joke. And I don't want to see that happen here in the United States. When I yeah. say a big joke, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like, you know, where you say, oh, yeah, maybe the government will take care of it. Ha, 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 ha. You've already accepted. It's a form of acceptance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't want to see that um, happen here in the Western world because everything else will fall apart from, from that center. And uh, we don't want to live in that. So in the meantime, we're, we, we are putting out that message and we're getting the evidence out there. and We're making people more skeptical. And that is a good thing in my view. And we're, we're picking up people like you. And uh, we couldn't have done the film without you. So I want to thank you for that and that. all of your work. And uh, thank you so much for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Yeah, well, it's been good speaking to you. And uh, I hope, um, you know, I just hope that, um, the, let's say, the Campbells get what they deserve, really, you know, and uh, their day in the coroner's court. And who knows what could happen then, you know? Absolutely. All right, there you go, folks. Another 9-11 freefall. Tell me if moving the microphone here right in front of me did anything regarding the sound issues. But we want to hear your comments, questions. You can leave them in the YouTube comments or you can write to me directly at 911freefall.com. But we want to hear from you and uh, give us your suggestions how we can improve the show and give you a great product to get the information out about the World Trade Center evidence. But for my part, this is Andy Steele saying I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.